This morning we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4. And the last time we went through chapter 3 and we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace by the hot-headed, hot-tempered King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, they just, their attitude was, if God delivers us, he does. If he doesn't, you know, he's still our God. He's sovereign. It's his decision. That was a great message. I encourage you to get it if you weren't here for it. And this morning, the title of today's message is Pride Goes Before Destruction. A lot of people say pride goes before the fall. They kind of meld it together. It's pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. So pride can be very destructive. That comes from Proverbs 16, Proverbs 16, 18. It can be destructive in our lives as well. Now we're going to look at the king, an actual historical figure, and I'm going to throw you some facts about ancient Babylon. And it's beautiful when we can take the scripture, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also a historical document, and meld it with secular history. For those that say that, you know, all kinds of aspersions they cast up about the Bible. Uh, so Daniel's actually a very remarkable and fascinating book. So we're going to look at the king, king Nebuchadnezzar and see what pride did to him, but also uh, we would be remiss if we didn't make an application to our lives as well. So let's jump in in verse 1. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, some believe that this belongs at the end of chapter 3. Some believe that it belongs at the end of chapter 4. Now remember, chapter delineations came centuries after the Bible was written. Uh, it was a decision that was made to make it easier to break down these, because a lot of them, they were scrolls. They were written on parchment. They had ancient, you know, we have books today, and, you know, you translate things and put a binder on and make it look pretty and footnotes and all that stuff. But chapter delineations were not necessarily inspired by the Holy Spirit, but certainly the Bible itself was. So there's going to be times where I believe, actually, this goes just at the end of chapter 3. And if you look at it in context, you know, God delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king is kind of blown away by it. So he makes these statements. But as far as I'm concerned, when we go through the book of Daniel, we see so many platitudes from the king. King of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And you know what? He just goes back to his old ways. Now, we can see that today, and I'm going to say a few things about those that, you know, we even deal with, and they get, have an emotional experience about God, but then they just fall right back into their routine. You know, a lot of the world gives God lip service, but they don't really live for him. They don't really follow him. And I'm just going to throw this out there so nobody thinks I'm being critical. I was one of those people. All throughout college, I had these awesome men of God. They were strangers, and they would talk to me about the Lord, and they knew what they were saying was right. But I also had a lifestyle that was pulling me away. But eventually, obviously the last time that I was witness to and I heard the word, uh, I gave my whole life to the Lord and I haven't looked back since. So verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. 
Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream. But they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar. So you have his Hebrew name and you have his Babylonian name. According to the name of my God, that's key. In him, in Daniel, is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. Daniel wasn't a magician, but remember, this is written by a pagan. He, he doesn't know better. He's believing in all these weird kind of superstitious practices. And because Daniel has this amazing gift from God, he kind of lumps him in with the rest of his counselors. Of course, his counselors can't help him. Daniel always helps him. And of course, he does that through God. So he brings in, he says, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. So time passes between the fiery furnace and this dream that the king has. But time passes and also the urgency passes. Again, we would be remiss if we didn't make uh, an application to today. You know, there's those that come up to the front to receive the Lord, and maybe it's more of an emotional experience than a hard experience. You know, you want it to be genuine. You want it to change the person's life as they start to walk with the living God. But on the other extreme are those that are being called by God. And I would put myself in that category early on. And I just kept, the, when the urgency passed, then I'm like, ah, I have time. But here's the problem. I was, I don't want to say lucky, I was blessed. I'm still here, I didn't die. But I know if I would have died in that state, I wouldn't have gone to heaven, because I didn't know God. And Jesus even says in uh, Matthew 7, he says that those will come to him and say, oh, Lord Jesus, and he say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of in- iniquity. That's a pretty scary thing if you think about it. So do we think that we have this time? If you're here this morning, do you think you have another day, another week, another year? I can tell you something. Any church in this area, we all do funerals. And once in a while we do a wedding, but we all do funerals. Several of them a year, people die. And the ones that we do are not always for those that are fortunate enough to be in their 90s. Some of them are young people. So I just want to impress to you that we don't have time because we don't know what tomorrow holds. Consider that. So in verse 8, people wrestle with this question, was Nebuchadnezzar saved? Was he not saved? Well, I'm going to tell you what I think of my opinion as we go further, but according to verse 8, Nebuchadnezzar refers to the name of his god, which was Bel. A lot of the names had Bel. Uh, in, in, initially, it was a pagan deity. So he's talking about his god, and then he calls, talks about Daniel's god, and he has the spirit of the holy god in him. So even the king's making a dichotomy between what he believed and what Daniel believed. So he's not saved yet. He calls his pagan counselors first, as he always did, and of course they couldn't give him the answer. So he went to Daniel. He says, in him, Daniel is the spirit of the holy God. Again, King Nebuchadnezzar is an example of, he sees the great works that the God of the Hebrews does, so he honors him. He certainly doesn't want to offend the God of the Hebrews because he's a very powerful God. Again, from a pagan person's, unbeliever's perspective. But he's also an example of those that don't put their full reliance in God. They honor him, they say nice things about him, but they don't fully put their trust in the Lord. Instead, they retain some of their old ways, some of their ways that are poised against God, sometimes religion. You know, people have this, this 
idea that if they belong to a religion, it could be popular, it could be the most populous, then surely when I get to heaven, I can say, God, I'm a fill in the blank, and he's going to let us in. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus taught. As a matter of fact, Jesus' biggest problem was with the religious leaders. It was a relationship that God desires with us through his son, Jesus Christ. Some reti- uh, retain the culture. I'll tell you, we live in a very de- decadent culture. If we let it influence us too much, then of course it's going to keep us from God. Some retain crutch relationships, and, th- and they find that there's no stability with God. And they get mad at God. You know, it's like an investment. What do you put in? What you put in is what you get out. Right? Verse 10. He says, these were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. The height reached to the heavens and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. So far so good. He has a dream about this beautiful tree. Now, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know it yet, but he's the tree. The tree is actually a picture of the the kingdom of Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar as its federal head. It was flourishing, and it had a positive effect on the nations around it. Now, was there bloodshed when Babylon united the the, uh, surrounding nations? Yes, there was. However, if the people would have listened to Jeremiah the prophet, even, even the Jews, he said to the Judahites, don't resist Nebuchadnezzar. This is, God is using him as a tool for judgment and punishment. If you don't resist, it'll be okay with you, but you know, you're not going to have the same freedoms you used to have. So it's very interesting that those that didn't resist, the Babylonians treated very well, hence Daniel and his three friends. I believe they came in one of the earlier waves of deportment. So this is what's happening. Um, and, and the idea here is that unification was more desirable than clashing factions or clashing tribes. So without Babylon as a united kingdom, there would have been all this bloodshed continuously, this fighting between these different people groups. But Babylon helped for that not to happen. Going into verse 13, he said, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, there was a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth. Bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it... Watch the change in pronouns here. You know, the Bible is very detailed for, for a purpose. He says, let it be wet, it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him, pronoun changes, let him graze with the beast's On the grass of the earth, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of an animal, and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets it over the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation. Since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. So the king's troubled by this dream. And he wants to know what it means. So the dream now takes a turn for the worse. A few things. Watcher or holy one. Now remember, this portion of Daniel is written in Aramaic. It's Chaldee. He's in a different 
country. Daniel has some duties in that country, and a lot of the writings have to be in Aramaic or Chaldee. Watcher's Holy One is probably a picture of one of God's mighty order of angels. And the angels do what? They do God's bidding. People have different ideas of angels. Oh, they're cute. They look like children. They got little ringlet hair. But the truth is that angels are mighty. When you read it in the scripture, you wouldn't want to meet one if he didn't have good news for you. Okay? So, so the watchers, and they proclaim this, and they, they do God's bidding. And he said seven times this Punishment will be seven times. The word times in Aramaic can mean a, a portion or t- a season, but most look at it as, as a, a year. So seven years are going to pass over. Basically, this is what's going on. King Nebuchadnezzar, as you could imagine, I'm going to talk about Babylon. I'm going to read about Babylon through history and some uh, encyclopedias today. But here's a man who did incredible things. He conquered the known world. Where would the United States fit in this geographical area that was conquered? It would be dwarfed. So it's funny, we have this Americentric idea, we read about American culture in our textbooks. We need to start reading things that are outside of our, uh, the Atlantic and the Pacific. Because there's a whole world out there, you know? I think sometimes it's the pride of our country, but... So with Nebuchadnezzar, he's got these great achievements, he naturally gets lifted up with pride, and God has to deal with him. He doesn't remember the poor. He's failing in meeting out justice. He's, he's starting to fail in his leadership, thinking more about himself than anybody else, and God deals with him. So he ends up living like a beast for a time so that he and all the world would know through this event that God is sovereign. He has dominion over the world, the earth, and the affairs of mankind. Let's talk about today. Right? This book was written some 2,600 years ago, 27 You know, we have many accomplished people in our culture that don't give God the glory. And you may know some of them. I mean, how many famous, I don't want to start throwing names around, but how many famous politicians, leaders, celebrities, and sad to say pastors of these empires are only there for a season, but to be cut down after God gives them plenty of space to repent because of their pride. And we, we may look at this and say, well, this has nothing to do with me. Yes, it does. We don't have to be a monarch. We don't have to have control to have pride in our hearts. As a matter of fact, pride keeps people from coming to God. Well, I'm generally a good person. That's a very prideful statement. So basically, what are you saying? Are you saying that all those people are going to hell and you're above that because you're generally, you didn't kill anybody? Did you steal? Did you lie? Listen, I'm good. I belong to a religion. No. Pride can keep us from the living God. You don't have to be Nebuchadnezzar for that to happen. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. Now Daniel's troubled by this, because he knows what this means. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and which there was food for all under which the beast of the field dwelt, and on whose branches the birds of the heaven had their habitation, it is you, O king. You have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reached to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth." 
Daniel does tell it eventually, but he's troubled. Number one, maybe he's not sure how the king will take it. Remember, in those days, there's something we're not used to. In those days, if you crossed the king or he had a bad day, he, it could be off with your head. But I don't, think, I don't see Daniel as a fearful type of person. That was maybe a minor concern. The other concern is Daniel was building a bridge with the king. He's trying to witness. I mean, gee, if we are Christians, we have that desire too. You know, if we meet an important person, wouldn't it be great to give them an opportunity to become saved? And wouldn't it be great if God used us to do that? So Daniel, he, he builds a bridge with this king and he says, King, may this be about your enemies. He knows what this means and it's, it bothers him. But you and I have had these experiences too. We try to work with somebody. We try to lead them to the Lord and maybe they're so stubborn and they won't yield and God has to deal with them. And we see something, a calamity happening in their lives and we know what that means. Remember 1 Samuel. Remember Samuel was, um, you know, he was there with Eli and Eli the priest and you know, God says to Samuel, he says, I'm going to take everything away from Eli because he and his sons, have, they're wicked. They're, his sons are doing bad things and it's just a, a bad representation of me, of God, to the people. And he's a young kid. And Eli, the priest, he's an older man. He comes in. He knows that God spoke to Samuel and he goes, Samuel, what did God say? What does the Bible say? Young Samuel told Eli everything. That was pretty brave for the young, the young boy at the time, right? I'm going to get somewhere with this. So, you know, again, we can definitely use it and take that application for our lives. Verse 23, inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses." You ever get the feeling that Nebuchadnezzar, after a few of these dreams, might have uh, not want to go to sleep at night and dream? You know what I'm saying? A little bit of uh, God-induced insomnia. So he's like, oh, another dream. He wakes up in the morning. Sheesh. They usually weren't good. But the tree had to be chopped down. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had to be dealt with his pride. But you know, Daniel, Daniel could have said, hey, I don't know, king. <laughs> what does it say, Daniel? What does it mean? I don't know. I forgot. But he was faithful because he loved the king, because it was a warning. So Christians, let me ask you this question. Let me digress. If you saw a person drowning, would you try to save them? Yes. Okay. If you can't swim, would you throw them a line? All right? Not everybody can swim. Second question. If you saw that a person was doing something that could hurt them, would you warn them? Yes. These are simple questions. Now here's the last one. This is called entrapment, by the way. <laughs> If God or his word called you to rebuke someone that would save them from calamity caused by sin, would you tell them and confront them? Because mm, not everybody would. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. If our, we really have good friends, sometimes our friends will wound us, right? 
But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, flattery. You're great, I'm great, we're all great. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Party on. Proverbs 27.5, it says, Open rebuke is better than love concealed. You see, folks, our culture is plastic. All you have to do is go on the news, read the paper, go on social media. We live in a very plastic culture. But see, if you're called to be a Christian, God calls us to higher things. And trust me, if you're really honoring God, you will lose friends. You'll lose acquaintances. I mean, I want the truth, too. I mean, if I get off the pulpit and I'm greeting people and my breath smells, hand me a mint discreetly, you know what I'm saying? Don't let me go on like that. So, I mean, do we want the truth? Or do we just want to smile at each other and tell each other we look great, we sound great, we are great, look at all the following you have on Facebook? That's just not what God calls us to do. Verse 23. He says, leave the stump in the ground. Remember Isaiah 6? You know, Isaiah goes before the Lord and he's so excited. He sees a vision of God. He's, he's blown away. And the Lord's like, well, who will go for us? Who will do my bidding? And Isaiah says, I'll go. Uh, by the way, what's, I'm paraphrasing. What's my ministry? Eh, it's kind of depressing. You know, no one's going to listen to you. And the, 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 there's not going to be a man in the land. And the place is going to be laid waste. And oh, wow, how long is this going to go on for? Well, listen, Isaiah, there is going to be a stump. Now, on my property, I have trees, a lot of trees, and sometimes there's stumps. I've got to tell you, given enough time, you'll see a shoot come up from that stump. Given enough time, it'll grow another tree. I love the way God used simple things in nature and horticulture. And remember, the society back then, it was a simple society. What does the stump tell us? Right? I mean, if you, if you ever had a tree removed on your property and you really want to get rid of it, you get a grinder. They grind that thing all the way down to the roots. There's nothing left. They can't come back. But a stump, things can come back. So this is what? This is a message of hope. It's a message of hope. That's what I love about God's word. You know, we think uh, God's mean in the Old Testament. He's not mean. He's loving. He's disciplining. But he always opens the door for restoration. That's what I love about my God. People think that there's a different God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Oh, Jesus was always always nice and sweet and, and father in the Old Testament. No, it's not true. There's a stump. There's a, a message of, of hope. See, Pharaoh was very stubborn all the way to the end, but Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to find that he does repent. He does relent. And what does God do? He restores him. And that's the hope in our lives too. So much he loves us. So the stump is bound with a band of iron and bronze. Iron signifies strength, bondage, being subdued. Bronze signifies judgment. Um, Nebuchadnezzar would be confined to a situation of discipline, punishment for a time, and there was nothing the king could do about it until he honored the God, God as his own God, and he changed. Verse 26. Inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel tells the king the bad news, but he also goes the extra mile of giving commentary on the interpretation and calls him to repent. King, you're in sin. And king, if you don't do this the right way and you don't repent, something's going to come upon you that you're really not going to appreciate. You're not going to like it. And God gives that to us too in his word you know he doesn't out of the blue smack us you know he he warns us 
the more we read God's word, we see that it's filled with loving warnings. Like you tell your kid, don't put your hand on a hot stove, you're going to get burned. Sometimes they got to do it the hard way. They, they just, they're so curious about putting their hand in, in the fire. And sometimes we do that too, even if we're adults. Now, I found an article. It's an interesting article. There's a lot of preachers out there today, probably in the last hundred or maybe hundred years, and they have this thing where they, they feel like they only need to preach a positive message. Probably know where I'm going with this, if you know me. <laughs> but there's an article written by Trevin Wax, and it says, Joel Osteen's negative message. He says, where is the God in his message? What about sin? What about grace? What about Jesus? Osteen answers his critics in the following way. I focus on the positive. Sin and punishment and all that isn't my message. I want to help people and don't want to beat them down all the time. By the way, that's a straw man argument. Talking about sin and punishment and warning, that's loving. It's not beating somebody down. Though Osteen claims he has positive sermons, I believe he is proclaiming the most negative, unmerciful message possible. Osteen is giving people burdened by sin, guilt, and despair more reason to despair. He says, Osteen's idea of good news is telling self-centered people to look for salvation and more narcissism. Osteen's preaching is like giving sugar to a diabetic. That really struck me. I'm like, that's a good one. <laughs> telling people that the magic medicine will help them when in fact it's speeding up their death. What would an Osteen-type personality tell the king? Ah, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, it's going to be all right. You just got to believe in yourself. It's not a pastor. Sorry. It's, listen, Tony Robbins is a very positive preacher. Uh, he's, he doesn't, well, he's a positive, what do they call that, self-help, kind of, you know, lift you up type of person. He doesn't claim to be a pastor. Osteen's not a pastor. You can't leave out a full half of the Bible that's warning us from a, 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 a listen, I've been, I've been smacked down, and I can't look back and go, oh, God was mean to me. If I look back, I can find out where I owned it. You know what I'm saying? And there was plenty of warnings that I didn't heed. And he did it because he loves me. And that's why he does it. So we continue. The king needed to learn that God is supreme and not him. The king needed to learn that even as the king of, of such a swath of area... Again, that would, that would dwarf the United States. He was only a tool used for a season by God. So let me ask you another question. What does the surgeon or the master craftsman do when their tool or their scalpel is uncooperative? They either fix it or they throw it away and they use another tool. God fixed Nebuchadnezzar. But what about us? See, the Bible in God's word will be foreign to us and unacceptable and unapplicable if we don't conform to it, not asking God's word to conform to us. And that's what some of these people do. They twist the scripture to make the Bible conform to us. Who are we? Let me just say this. Who am I? And this things I read that I don't like. I'm a pastor. And like, oh, gee, that's a tough one. You know, I, how do I deal with that or whatever? It's, it's something that is in my life that needs to go. Who are we to tell God, to tell his word to conform to us? We're supposed to be transformed by his word and the image of his son, not the reverse. Again, it will be foreign 
unapplicable, we'll look at the Bible, we'll read it, we'll close the book and be depressed if we don't look at it with the mindset that it needs to change us. Amen? Amen. All right. Whether it's Nebuchadnezzar, the President of the United States, a famous actor, sports figure, I'd love to share the gospel with any of them. Right? Listen, sometimes in the church the attitude is we need somebody famous. We need somebody else to get saved in Hollywood or a sports figure so we could rally behind them. What about you? What about you? What about you? What about you up there? Individuals. Well, nobody knows me. You know what? I said the same thing. When I was asked to be the pastor of this church, I had all the excuses. Ask my wife. I'm a nobody. You know, the pastor that just left and the pastor of the church they came from, they're all, everybody knows them. It was stupid of me. And God was like, that's right where I want you. Sometimes it's hard for him to use celebrities, you know? And, and thankfully, by the Holy Spirit, good friends, and my wife, I, I gave in and said, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll see. You know, I'll try it, so to speak. Try it, you'll like it. Here I am, 12 years later. But I just love telling people about the truth. I love giving them the no-nonsense gospel, the truth straight up. It's not about growing a church. It's not about getting more of a collection. It's about growing people in the word. Verse 27, let me read that again. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel is faithful about sin, punishment. Why? Because I believe he loved the king. With truth comes personal responsibility of the, of the sayer and of the hearer. Think about this. If you really love a person and they're hurting themselves, if you walk away, it shows that you don't love them. But if you're willing to risk your relationship with them and tell them the truth, that's out of love. Now, let me just throw in a caveat here, the other extreme. There are some that are afraid. There's some that are afraid to tell the truth. They're just afraid. Well, I'm shy, I'm this. Those, those, are not, those are excuses. This is what the Bible says. You can do this. And then on the other extreme, and this is a problem, I believe, in the church, the aggregate church, are those that enjoy telling people about hell and sin and punishment. There should be nothing enjoyable about it. If we enjoy doing that, then probably we're not the ones who should be preaching it. And I see this, and it's sad because the media will pick up on this. The very small percentage of unloving Christians who say harsh things, not out of love, and they say, this is what all Christians do. That type of witness hurts us, I believe. When you're done talking to somebody who doesn't know the Lord, are they convinced that you love them? See, I believe that Nebuchadnezzar was con convinced that Daniel loved him. And I'm just going to do a little role-playing. My illustration, I don't know how it went down, but I could picture Nebuchadnezzar saying to Daniel, Belteshazzar, hey Daniel, it's me. It's Nebi. Come on. Tell me what this is about. Come on. What are you, don't worry about it. I know it's probably a little hard to hear, but tell me. You can see Daniel going, Oh, king, I wish this was about your enemies. King, there's no other way to say this. You're in sin. You've got to change. You know, you're, you're neglecting the poor. There's not justice and righteousness in the kingdom. And king, if you don't turn from your ways, God's going to humble you. That's just me. Don't know if that's how it went down, but I believe that Nebuchadnezzar was, this pagan man was clearly convinced that Daniel loved him because of the way he handled him. The truth and love. Can't have one without the other. Verse 28. 
All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Now, 12 months passed by. Remember, the urgency's gone. Memories faded a little bit. The king spoke, saying, Isn't this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling, for my mighty power, and for the honor of my majesty? 12 months, and the king's at it again, back to his old prideful ways. But God showed mercy in giving him a whole year. Now, let's just talk about what a worldly man might think about running Babylon. How many of you are students of history to the point that you really have a good grasp that you've studied the Babylonian kingdom? Anybody? Okay, so let me help you out here. (laughs) All right. First, the city of Babylon was 2,200 acres with a population of greater than 200,000 people. Remember, we're going back 3,000 years. That was pretty fantastic for that day. It was situated between the Tigris and Euphrates River with the city built on the mighty Euphrates River. It contained the Edmanonki ziggurat. By the way, a lot of these structures are still there in the desert. Amazing. 3,000 years later. And you can still see the structures through sandstorms and stuff. A lot of it's like the pyramids worn down. But these things are still there. When you go home, go into the encyclopedia and look up Babylon. It also contained the famed Ishtar Gate. Germany and other countries have reproduced some of the beautiful walls with the um, reliefs and stuff that were, um, art, you know, the artisans made. Gorgeous. Um, these people were brilliant. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Think about this. In the middle of the desert, they, it was an, an engineering, architectural, and horticultural feat where there was these lush, beautiful, green Gardens, if they still existed, my mom, would, uh, my mom, my wife, who's a master gardener, would be pressuring me to go over there and take a look at them. They must have been gorgeous because everybody spoke about them. They used aqueducts to bring water into these gardens. The great walls were 90 feet high and 30 feet wide that three chariots abreast could actually ride, race back and forth on the top of the walls. In some parts, the walls were 300 feet high and 80 feet wide. And... If you go there, you'll still see the walls of Babylon 3,000 years later. I got this off the Seven Wonders of the World website. It says, in the view of Nebuchadnezzar, the city, the walls left, the city and the walls left the enemies awestruck, and the inhabitants of the city brought to marvel. Thus, an ancient text has been preserved by Nebuchadnezzar in cuneiform, that ancient writing. Now, this is separate from the scripture. They found these different writings and, and artifacts and such. Quote, what no king, this is Nebuchadnezzar, what no king has done before me, I did. The city behind the walls was distant, unapproachable. I had a huge wall eastward to enclose Babylon. I completed Babylon. Today, 3,000 years later, if you go to uh, about 53 miles south of Baghdad in the Babel province, you'll still see these ruins. Unfortunately, though, with Babylon and its greatness came, very, came uh, decadence and a lot of twisted cults and religions. Um, that really pulled the people away from God. So, you know, this is my speculation that possibly God's plan was to save Nebuchadnezzar so that he could turn and start reversing some of these horrible trends, like Josiah the king in Judah. He raised him up to start start destroying these false uh, temples and, and idol worship and stuff. See, we often look today at discipline in our culture. We have a culture that's entitled, it's anti-rules, anti-authority. 
We look at discipline as mean, as restrictive, but that's not the way the Bible looks at it. It's not the way God looks at it. Some read the Bible and they, they look at the hard lessons that people have to learn and they're troubled by it. However, think about this. Had Nebuchadnezzar not learned these lessons, he would have lived, continued to live a self-deceiving lifestyle, would have hurt the people under him more, and he would have been in hell for the last 3,000 years. Now, I'm going to make the case at the end that he did have a conversion experience and he did follow the Lord. And again, pr- pride today keeps people from seeking the Lord. Verse 31, we're almost at the end here. While the word was still in the king's mouth, this great Babylon I created, a voice from heaven fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. At that very hour... The word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. It's not a pretty picture. Now, these kings back in the day had beautiful robes. They were perfectly manicured. You know, their appearance was glorious, right? They had the best of the best. They were uh, pampered, fine apparel. And he goes from that to a beast, uh, with, with extreme hairy growth, nails probably curling on his fingers, um, being on all fours and eating grass like an ox. Now, here's a funny thing. Well, a few things. Let's go into secular sources. The Greek uh, historian Abedinus, uh, 3rd century BC, said, quote, Nebuchadnezzar was, now again, he's a pagan. He doesn't know what happened to him. He's just surmising from what he knows. Nebuchadnezzar was possessed by a god, and immediately he disappeared. So that's his impression of what happened to the king. There's actually a condition today called lycanthropy, and that's where somebody believes that they're an animal, and they act like an animal. And it's funny because now I, you know, I, it takes me so long to do my messages because I go through all these rabbit trails. Now I'm looking at lycanthropy. And it's funny because in the clinical definition, it's not Christian, it's not religious. It's, and he goes... And in the Bible, in the book of Daniel, it's obvious that the King Nebuchadnezzar suffered from a case of clinical lycanthropy. So there you have it. Last few verses. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. All those who walk in pride he is able to abase or humble. So the king's dignity is restored. He praises God, and I believe he's, he's saved at that point. That's my opinion. He claims the God of the Hebrews for himself. Kind of sounds a little bit like um, Ecclesiastes. Remember King Solomon? got so You know, when you have a lot of pride and you have a lot of authority or when you have a lot of uh, control, authority, maybe wealth, 
Sometimes it can affect the person negatively. You start to believe your own propaganda. You become lifted up. But King Solomon, I believe, at the end of Ecclesiastes, had this same type of experience. But what did the king see? And let's put this in perspective when he was restored. He saw a few things about God. He saw the mercy, the grace, the power, the forgiveness, the restoration, and the sovereignty of God. He saw, check this out, that everyone under him for seven years was able to run the kingdom without him. Is that humbling or what? This great Babylon was the last thing he said. I built it seven years later. The place didn't fall apart. God used somebody else to run the kingdom. It's believed that his son, Evil Merodach, it's a weird name, but that was his name, uh, that he was actually running things while his father was running around the field eating grass and probably making noise. There's actually a boanthropy, which means that a person thinks that they're an ox. But this was something that God induced on him. So he comes back and he realizes that God was able to run the kingdom without him. I just want to read the last two verses again. It says, At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. So they now switched the power back to him. I was restored to my kingdom. Excellent majesty was added to me. What excellent majesty? More of an understanding of who God is. God only makes us... You want to, you want to have a better you? It's not a self-help book. It's through God. God will make you a better you. Without, it's, it's just temporary. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. Let's, look, let's talk about ourselves. We may never have this type of power, but in our own lives, I can tell you for me that pride does terrible things. It ruins relationships, it hurts us, it deceives us, we actually go around as if we're one thing, but people see us as something else. When we don't deal with pride in our lives, it hurts us on so many levels. We can't take correction. We can't compromise with people. It hurts marriages. It hurts families. This is what pride does. I can go on. The Bible talks about how much God hates pride. Pride actually leads to adultery because you think you're so great. Pride leads to theft. Because you think you should have something that that person has. Pride leads to covetousness. Pride leads to gossip. Because you're better than that person that you're talking about. I could do this all day. People say, well, what's the big deal about pride? God hates it, and he hates it for a reason. Proverbs 16, 18 through 19 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly, or the humble, than to divide the spoil with the proud. You know, even, you know, we're all born with some type of natural ability, some type of uh, uh, intelligence or affinity towards something that we're good at. Do we give God the glory? When we become believers, we're also endowed with spiritual gifts. And we can do amazing things, you know, in, in an ecclesiastical sense, but do we give God the glory? I think that if we're Western Christians, we all suffer from pride in, in a certain degree. You know, and I tell you, the whole thing with the prosperity gospel, it's almost like, well, look at me, I'm doing well. You don't have, it's because you don't have the faith that I have. Again, it's rooted in pride. Think about this. September is perfect because we're in back to school month. We send our kids to school. We want them to get good, good grades. Our older kids go to college. Those of us who are professors and teachers, we go and we teach. Sometimes education 
can instill pride in us. Now, I'm not against education, but I have to tell you, if my son, I only have one, and I want him to go to heaven, if it's a competition between him maintaining his honor roll and being a, a man of God, and this has to suffer so that he could be a godly man, then it suffers. And we've had this discussion in the DeProsimo household. You know, what's the sense if your kid is a genius or your spouse or whoever, and they're going to hell? Does it make any sense? Let's put this in perspective. If you don't know the Lord, give your life to God. Honor your, honor your God with your very life. He created you. Anything good that you have is because he gave it to you. The Bible says that he's the father of good gifts. All good gifts come from the Father in heaven. It's not going to be through good works or a religion. i got news for you. Some scoff at this idea of a relationship with Jesus. But, I, but I, I serve and I volunteer and I do and I give to the poor. Jesus said in Matthew 7, you can do all those things but not know him and you won't be with him at the end. The Bible says in Romans that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. And we are all eternally lost without Jesus Christ as our Savior. Believer, brothers and sisters, give glory to God, you and me. In anything good in our lives, put our achievements into perspective. As we go into the fall, as we go into a new season of life, put it all into, into perspective. James 4 says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Let us say what King Nebuchadnezzar said, a man that was so incredibly accomplished. And what did he do? He gave all that glory to the Lord. Let's pray.